chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has they done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leslie. As I said, a heavy passage we're going to work through today as we come to the crucifixion of Jesus next Sunday. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how many of you heard his name before? Maybe read a short biography or a longer biography on him. He was a German man born in 1906 into really a, a remarkable family, a uh, family of sophistication, a family of education, and they had a great just German cultural influence in the early 1900s, his parents, his siblings, I think he was one of eight or nine. At a young age, Dietrich decided at the age of 13, he decided he wanted to study theology against his father's wishes. Uh, his mother was a, a Christian, his father a bit agnostic, didn't, wasn't against their Christianity, but was surprised that his son wanted to study theology. He grew up under the shadows of World War I, becoming a well-known theologian, seminary teacher, uh, and pastor, and yet he took great risks, if you know his life, to return from America, to go back to his homeland, to Germany, 
during Hitler's reign. And that ultimately, uh, to help the German people, and in particular the Jews, and that ultimately cost him his life at the very near tail end of World War II. He was so close. So close. Well, as he grew partially from the influence of his family, but also even more from his Christian beliefs, Diedrich understood this, that ideas were never mere ideas, but the foundations upon which one built one's actions and ultimately one's life. Ideas and beliefs must be tried and tested because one's life might depend on them. Uh, From a biography by Eric Metaxas on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. What causes a man like Dietrich to make choices as he did? To speak up in ways that would consciously cause his own suffering and ultimately his death? And how about you and I? Could our, could our ideas, our beliefs about Jesus, make it possible for you and I to stand under persecution if God so called us to that? That's what Metaxas is saying here. He, he, he had founded his life upon these beliefs. Are they the foundation, I guess, is the question, as they need to be the foundation upon which we build our life so that we can persevere, not just when persecution comes, but even great trials in our life. They are the foundation as they were for Bonhoeffer. What makes this possible for a man to suffer the way he did and make choices that would bring about suffering? It's, it's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. It's the path our great King Jesus took. Today it's the sad and shocking suffering servant Jesus and what he accomplished. I think that's a big part of it. The abandonment and suffering of Jesus while serving, we're going to talk about today, as the payment of our sins has also been a great source of encouragement as we suffer with Jesus, not necessarily for, but with, a great source of encouragement for those who have gone through their own excruciating trials, even as I know some of you right now are today. This morning, we're going to look at three scenes of increasing abandonment and suffering to hopefully embrace a king in your heart who saved through silence, who won by losing, So hopefully you got your outline there and your Bible's open to Mark 15. As we look at our first scene, here's our first one in this story today. We're going to see that Jesus responds in silence to the many accusations. He responds in silence. He saves through silence, uh, as I just said. He wins through losing. It's just not what you would expect. So to to think back for a minute on our our context, remember, uh, we're moving from the courtyard on early Friday, from the courtyard on early Friday, uh, where Peter had just denied Jesus at at this midnight sham of a trial, do you remember it? Uh, Where the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, uh, had convicted Jesus of blasphemy as he finally revealed his identity in clear terms when the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And he responded, I am. I am. He went on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It was this uh, really a a claim to power and glory that only God should have. It's a claim to deity, that the Messiah would also be divine. 
They thought he'd be human, but to be divine too, this son of man, coming in these glory judgment clouds? Well, we know the trial becomes a riot. They beat him up. They spit on him. And now it's the morning they realize, well, we can't put him to death. We can't do that. Only the Roman governor can. And they also realize we need this to happen before sundown because at sundown, Sabbath begins. It was Passover season, the festival. They, they, they had to get this thing done. It had to be done. And so they bind Jesus, we read in the Scripture. Think about that. A man whom Isaiah describes as having done no violence, no deceit coming out of his mouth, a pure man, and they bind him. Think about that. What for? He'd never done one violent thing in his life. They just want him gone. They want him out of their sight. So they bind him and they take him to Pilate so Pilate could seal his sentence, so Pilate could seal his fate of death. Who was this man, Pilate? Pilate, he's mentioned in Scripture a few different places, especially in the Gospels and and he is this governor, this Roman governor, so a Roman, a Roman governor of Judea, the area around, surrounding Jerusalem. He was the Roman governor from A.D. 26 to 36, history records, which makes it really nice as we date Jesus' life that other history books from the era actually record that this man existed, a little confirmation or affirmation uh, and confirming that Jesus really lived at this time. History records that Pilate, he was, he was notoriously harsh, he was heavy-handed, they called him as a leader, but also kind of inept, which is probably why he ended up being heavy-handed a lot, because he wasn't a good leader. And, and he did not like the Jews and even would antagonize them at times, some stories from history record. And we're going to see today, it's really, he could, he could care less about Jesus' claims to be Messiah. That was a Jewish religious thing. That really didn't, it didn't really matter to him. He was concerned with his position. He was concerned with keeping the peace. The Messiah thing was not really an issue for him. So we see as they come to him, they twist up and they distort the accusations against Jesus as Luke records. Take a look. They began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's not what Jesus said, was it? He said, pay to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. And saying that he himself is Christ. And then they added on a king. They added that on. That's what Pilate cared about. That's what really got him going. Does Jesus think he's a king? Does he think he's a king? And so as Jesus comes before him, he asks him, Are you? Are you the king of the Jews? That's what matters to him, because there's no king but Caesar, right? And Pilate's responsible for keeping the peace in this Roman territory. There's no king but Caesar. Are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? Now, Jesus' answer, it's kind of mysterious, isn't it? It's sort, of, uh, it's sort of cryptic, and Jesus has a tendency to do that sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes he's really clear, but not always. And his answer in this mysterious way, he says, you have said so. You've said so. What do you mean by that? He doesn't directly deny it. He doesn't really clearly affirm it here. It's kind of as, as if he's saying, 
I'm a king, but you have no idea what kind of king. You have no idea what kind of king I am. We see him in John also say, my kingdom is not of this world, he said to Pilate as well. My kingdom is not of this world. So as they continue to accuse and they continue to pour on these accusations, Pilate's, he's absolutely amazed. He's just stunned at the way this human, this Jesus, standing in front of him, he, he's, responding, he's responding to these accusations. He says to him, why don't you answer them? Do you hear the charges they're bringing against you? Do you hear what they're saying about you? You know, in our, era, in our age, it's, you know, the charges can come from anywhere, can't they? Social media, online, a word from somebody else. You know, we've got so many avenues. It's, it's like the modern day, uh, imagine, you know, thousands of people on Twitter pouring on accusations falsely on somebody, and everybody's waiting for their response. Total silence. We're kind of our modern equivalent. And Pilate's amazed. He's amazed in Jesus' passivity. Jesus has been a man of action from the beginning, hasn't he? Teaching, healing, going here, going there, traveling all over. He's always been a man of, of action in his ministry. And now here, he's totally passive. He's totally silent in the face of injustice. He keeps his mouth shut. What other than obedience to the Father, his Father, and love for you could keep him silent in a moment like this. What else? Obedience and love for God the Father and obedience and love for knowing what he's doing for you. What could keep that man silent in that moment? He had his father and he had you in mind right in this moment with Pilate. That's why he stays silent. You're in his mind there. You're right there with him. And he says, no, no, I need to keep quiet. I know what I'm here for. I know what I'm doing. I'm obedient and love God my Father. Oh, and my people that I will be with someday. You're right there with him. I'm right there with him as Pilate. Pilate really wants nothing actually to do with Jesus, really. He wants nothing to do with him. As Luke records, and we look at the parallel accounts a lot because they, they give different details as the authors chose and the Spirit led them to write. Luke records that he, he sends him off to the Jewish leader, Herod. He sends him off to Herod where Jesus goes, and, and he doesn't speak a word. He doesn't say one word even to Herod. At least Pilate got some stuff. Actually, some co uh, conversations recorded in John, too. With Herod, he says nothing. Herod murdered John the Baptist, didn't he? Doesn't honor him with even a word. John the Baptist, who Jesus loved dearly and was related to, Herod's amused as, as Jesus comes to him. He's amused by Jesus. But even Herod doesn't think Jesus is guilty. And so he sends him off. Uh, he sends him back to Pilate. Mark doesn't record that little interlude, but that's what happened. He sends him off, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Herod doesn't think he's guilty either. And he's like, go back to Pilate. I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to be part of this. I mean, think about this for a minute. The king of the world is being shuffled around like some piece of carry-on luggage. 
like some piece of like extra baggage you just want to unload. The king of the world just shuffled around. You take him. You take him. I don't want him. You take him. Get him out of here. Take him. Send him back to Pilate. I, mean, I, don't, I don't see anything he's done wrong, but I don't want to be part of this. And he's silent along the way because he will make sure that he makes it to the cross. That's why he's silent right now. He will make sure, as you are in his mind, in this moment, that he will make it to that cross where he will be nailed for humanity. That's why. And so he comes back to Pilate. He comes back to Pilate where we get our, our, our second scene beginning in verse 6. Here it is. The unjust substitution of a king for a criminal. So we get this second scene. The unjust substitution of a king for a criminal. In John 18, Pilate goes back out to the crowds after he's questioned Jesus. And he tells them, I, I find no guilt in him. Uh, uh, just a crowd of people there, of high priests and, and just regular pe everyday people all gathered there. And he says, I, I find no guilt in him. And they're in an uproar. In that moment, Pilate finds himself in a great dilemma. Uh, probably one of the greatest of maybe his political career. He's in a dilemma. He's been chastised by Rome before for being heavy-handed. History records his heavy-handedness. And now it's on the verge of a riot? He can't afford that. His life could be at stake. He cannot afford this to get out of hand. And Pilate, as, as, a, as a good politician, he's thinking of a way out of it. He's coming up with a plan. Oh, I know, Scripture says, I know, I know these chief priests envy Jesus. I'll approach the crowd with an option. Possibly they will let him go. Look at verse, chapter 15, verse 6, picking up there. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who'd committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy, there it is, that the chief priests had delivered him up. And here we meet the notorious Barabbas. Notorious Barabbas. You know, throughout chapter 14 and 15 of Mark's gospel, Mark has been doing an absolutely fantastic and brilliant, really, even artistic picture of showing in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus as our substitute. Jesus as our substitute. It's called substitutionary atonement. It's kind of a big word, but it's just Jesus as our substitute. Substitutionary atonement. Mark 14, you remember, Jesus tells the truth when on trial with the Sanhedrin, and he gets condemned. They were the ones who should have been on trial, not him. There's a substitute, a switching of places. Jesus gets the punishment the judges deserve. They put God on trial. There's the substitute. In the courtyard, remember, Peter, Peter lies in his own trial of his own sort as he's accused of being a follower, and he denies Jesus and gets away with it. While Jesus takes the punishment Peter deserves in that moment. And now, 
now this violent criminal, violent criminal, who's really a picture of us all. Jesus, the king, is substituted for the criminal and gets what Barabbas deserves. Mark takes this substitution to its completion here. The innocent king, Jesus, will die on the cross, and Barabbas, a convicted thief and murderer, will go free. Can we think of a clearer picture of substitution than what we see in this moment? Substitutionary atonement, one commentator said, it's the just taking the justice for the unjust. The just taking on the justice for the one who's unjust. Barabbas, Jesus. Us, Jesus. Peter, Jesus. Sanhedrin, Jesus. It's all substitution, is what Mark's trying to tell us. 1 Peter 3.18 does a really good job of unpacking this idea of substitution. Let me jot this down. It comes up in your life, your questions this week. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here's the phrase. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's substitution. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he may bring us to God. That's why you're in his mind in front of Pilate. He realizes he's going to bring you to God. Being put to death in the flesh, Peter went on, but made alive in the Spirit. Substitution, that's what Jesus is doing. So Mark is trying to get us to see. At Passover, it was the tradition of Pilate. Uh, he'd start, uh, established this tradition to release a prisoner that was condemned and to gain favor with the people. And that's what he attempts here, Mark records for us. And it's this man, Barabbas. Do you know what's incredible about this? Do you know what Barabbas' name means? Son of the Father. Barabbas' name means Son of the Father. So here we have one Son of the Father who's a murderer, who's a thief, who's a nationalistic kind of revolutionary, a rebel against Rome who fights with violence, and then we have the true Son of the Father, Jesus, the peaceful King of the world, who wins by losing, who saves in silence, God in flesh, two sons of the Father. It's incredible. Barabbas' name, son of the Father, and the people choose Barabbas. They choose Barabbas, a, a convicted thief and murderer. What shall I do, Pilate says? What shall I do then with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they yell, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Now, apart from the chief priests, which Scripture says, they're stirring up the crowd. No, no, when he, when he says no, they're no, no, yell, crucify him. They're stirring up the crowd. Apart from that, I believe there's something else going on here too. Barabbas kind of represents the small, the, the narrow hopes of the people. I mean, come on. What, what kind of leader, is the, as, as he put them in front of them, what, what kind of leader and king puts himself last? It's Jesus. 
give us someone at least takes matters into his own hands. Give us that kind of guy. That's the kind of guy we want. But win by silence? Suffer? Win by losing? Who wins by losing? What kind of leader do you want that puts himself last? I mean, come on, give us this guy. And what kind of God would tell us that we too need to give him control? A God who suffers. And that following him might even lead that same kind of path, that same kind of suffering, and maybe even death too? I mean, come on. That's the kind of God of the, the Bible, the one, that's the one that's calling us and leading us. Barabbas, he appeals to more of our kind of narrow uh, approach, to uh, our desire to protect our own self-interest. Who wants a king that's going to lay down and die? He appeals to our own self-interest. I mean, at least he's a man of action. And hey, if violence is necessary, so be it. He got the job done. We're prone to follow, I think is the point here, we're prone to follow the Barabbas-like and not the Jesus-like. When you think of our box office heroes you've grown up with, some of them model the sacrificial servant, but how many of them put themselves last? How many kings put themselves last? None. I love uh, what Garland, David Garland, the commentator, says on this. He says, our heroes become the Barabbases of the world who take matters into their own hands and dispatch the enemy with brute force or clever trickery. He thinks if the vote came today, then Barabbas would likely win again, hands down. We're more comfortable with the violent machismo of the knight errant than with the passive suffering of a seemingly powerless Savior who submits to beating and mockery. But this is what Jesus came to do. This is what he came to do. And yet I know my heart is, 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 is pulled and it's been trained even as I've uh, imbibed the heroes of our culture to want this kind of hero. Take it by force. Go get it. Uh, be all in. Uh, take it by might. Hey, and if, it, if we need a little violence, then hey, so be it. Rather than this kind... But in his passive obedience, he substitutes himself in your place. And he soaks up, he soaks up the venom we deserved. As Tony talked about a few weeks back, he drinks that cup of wrath that Barabbas deserved, the Sanhedrin deserved, that Peter deserved, that you and I deserve. That's why he keeps his mouth shut. And that's why he suffers. And it's because we see him doing this and knowing that he did it out of love, I think, we can trust him in the here and now. That's why. Because you know he went this path, you can trust him in the here and now. So we trust him with our afterlife for sure. You know, all of us in here are Christians who say, yes, I'm trusting Jesus for my future. I'm trusting Jesus for heaven. I know he paid my sins. I'm trusting him for heaven. We, we, we get that, the afterlife. But how does a man like Bonhoeffer, how does he, he got out. They had a secret plan. They let him, well, not a secret plan, but they got him a job in a seminary. I think it was in New York. And they got him out, and he had a job, and he was going to go teach. And it was even almost on the boat ride over. 
that he makes the choice to turn around. How does he do that? To go back to Germany and, and know he's going to probably face certain death after he'd already escaped to America. How do you and I, how do we, we, we understand the, the afterlife, but how do you and I in the here and now let go sometimes of the obsessive control we can tend to like grasp our own life in and, and, and find ourselves being so riddled with anxiety or with just worry or how do we let go of that? When suffering comes, you look at his. And you say to yourself, well, I, I might not know why God is allowing this to happen right now. I might not know why he's allowing this to happen, but, but look at what he went through. I mean, he, he's allowing it to happen, but it can't be because he doesn't understand suffering. It can't be because he doesn't know what I'm going through. It can't be because he gets some sick pleasure out of making me suffer. It can't be because he doesn't love me, because look at what he went through. Look at what he went through. That's what you do when suffering comes, when trials come. We want a Barabbas, though, don't we? Blow him away, Barabbas. You know, get blow him away. That's what we want. Not a Jesus. But look at what he did for you. You can trust him when persecution comes. You can trust him when he takes you into the courtyards like he did Peter, and you're surrounded. Why am I here, Jesus? Everyone's against me. You can trust him when he asks, asks you to speak up sometimes at the sight of maybe injustice and wrong, like a Bonhoeffer did. He silently traded places with a criminal. You can trust him. The innocent was declared guilty, and the guilty was released. Pilate knew. Pilate knew he was innocent, yet he hands him over to death. He washes his hands of the blood, Matthew says. He knows... Pilate knows injustice is taking place. And he kind of in moral indifference or maybe moral cowardice to save his own hide, he goes along. Moral indifference, moral cowardice, that's not really an option for the Christian. Pilate kind of goes along. Pilate represents, as one commentator said, he represents a state concerned only with preserving order, regardless of the injustice suffered by others. He just goes along to get along, basically. That's what Pilate does. There's so much evil in this cultural moment here, with Jesus standing there before Pilate. There's so much evil going on. Pilate's coming through with this moral indifference. Uh, the chief priests to the crowds to the soldiers we're seeing. They're all just going along to get along. They're all. How did they go from a crowd praising him with palm branches just a short time earlier to yelling, crucify him? I mean, think about Germany in Bonhoeffer's day. How did they go from at one point um, having some issues with Jews to become a, a Jewish killing machine. How does that happen in a culture? Or think about our own culture. How do we go from here to there, to there, to there, as we see things change? Evil rise up. Things take over. There's a book written after the um, Nazi Germany. Uh, I'll read it. It's kind of, uh, actually, you can see it. But there's a book written where they interviewed a bunch of Germans after World War II. 
And they talked, and they're like, how did this happen? I mean, it was a matter of 10 years. How did this happen to your culture? And here's what one of them said, this excerpt from this book. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and smallest, thousands, I mean, yes, millions of people would have been sufficiently shocked. If, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come immediately after the German firm stickers on the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33, so a 10-year window. They put stickers up to not shop Jewish, only shop German. But of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you to not be shocked by the next step. Step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you don't make a stand at step B, why should you at step C and so on to step D? And one day too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you, and this author realized that when the day his young son said, those Jewish swine. He goes on in the quote to say that. That's when I realized, oh, wow, what's happened? And we never stood. It's how a culture changes. It's how a crowd goes from waving palm branches to yelling, crucify him. Little steps along the way in that three-year ministry of Jesus. It's how injustice grows worse along the way. No one speaks up. That's how. No one stands up for the voiceless, the weak, the innocent one on trial, the exploited one who's standing there. So what that means is we have a, we have a responsibility, don't we? It's a heavy one, but we have a responsibility when we are silent in, in, in the face of sin and injustice. There's some culpability there. In our places of work, in our family, in our own town, or silent in the face of those who need the Savior, we know they need him, and yet it's just too awkward. It's just too awkward. Silence is a culpability of a kind as they realized post-Germany. And here they found themselves being carried along, crucify him, crucify him. It's likely some in the crowd have no idea why they're even saying it. Everybody's chanting it, crucify him, crucify him. But they were also in this moment, unknowingly, weren't they, weaving together God's sovereign plan to save us. Weaving it together to bring salvation to you and I through this suffering Jesus. So it's our third scene, the extreme suffering of the abandoned king. It's one we have to look at quickly because it shows the physical depths to which Jesus suffered, but I think it also gives us the moral courage to even suffer as we know we're suffering with him, not just for him. You know, the Passion accounts, they don't emphasize the physical suffering as much. It's there. They don't emphasize it as much as... Um, the, the movie that came out 10, 15 years ago, The Passion, uh, they, don't, they emphasize more the, the spiritual suffering, the psychological, the relational suffering of Jesus between him and the Father. But it's here, and we have to see it. Verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's sort of just mentioned in passing. It's sort of just mentioned he scourged Jesus. He had, him, he had him whipped. It's just kind of there. But Mark's readers would have known. This last week, 
It's only happened twice in my life, but this last week, my back went out. Just uh, like horrible. I was on the floor, couldn't move, couldn't get around. I'm just on the tail end kind of of it today, which is why maybe I'm a little bit like this. But I mean, it was, it was, it was painful. I was aware of my back, which I'm not normally often. I know some of you are aware of it every day, your own. I couldn't move. I was crawling around, laying on tennis balls and things and icing and all of that stuff. But as I was thinking through that this week and studying this passage, I thought, I mean, whatever I've gone through is nothing to what Jesus experienced. Here's what this guy Lane says about scourging. A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped down, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes simply thrown to the ground, was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by the Mark text, the dreaded flagellum, that's a scourging, consisted of leather thongs plated with several pieces of bone or lead as to form a chain. In a scourging, no maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, and men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging even. Josephus, ancient historian, records that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible. While the procurator Albinus had the prophet Jesus Barhanan scourged until his bones lay visible. His blood begins to be spilled for us. After that, a whole battalion of about 600 morally indifferent Roman soldiers also surround him. They clothe him in a purple cloak. They mock his kingship. They take a crown of thorns and shove it into his head, which causes blood to now come down his already disfigured face. And they mock him as the king. After returning to Germany, Bonhoeffer was given a job to work for the Abwehr, it's called. It's a German military intelligence agency that was at the center of the plot to assassinate Hitler. So pastor becomes spy, I guess is <laughs> what we would talk about, Diedrich, as a double agent. The failed Valkyrie plot, which many of you have heard of, led to the arrest of many who revealed other names through torture, and one of them was Bonhoeffer. April 9th, just two days uh, from now, actually, uh, 1945, only three weeks before the end of the war. He almost made it. Three weeks before the end of the war, on direct orders from Hitler, actually, Bonhoeffer was hung. What makes someone risk death? And, 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 in fact, face death for others? What transforms ordinary Christians into bold professing Christians willing to follow Jesus wherever he may lead. It was with Bonhoeffer back to Germany to be those who protect the weak, the vulnerable, and speak in the face of great evil. Seeing and believing. Seeing and believing that Jesus the King suffered the shame, the pain, the punishment. I should have. You should have. That's how. It's Jesus trading places with you. It's substitutionary atonement. That's what our table's about today. Our table's about substitutionary atonement. The innocent putting himself in the place of the guilty for you so that you could live then a life for him knowing, I'm totally secure regardless of what happens. I'm totally secure. 
Was our servers prepared and come forward and get ready? I want you to take a moment. I want you to, us just to contemplate what Christ went through. Today, it's the physical suffering. Next week, we'll look at the spiritual, the psychological, the true payment on the cross. But today, think through that. And, and, and in the context of your own life and your own trials that um, God might call you through, think on the fact that it can't be because he doesn't love you. Look at what he went for you. So take a moment in silence as our servers come forward.